Coca, sonarai, sonarai en ti. 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 Hello, hi, welcome to this episode of the Mango TV podcast. Today we have a very special guest, Thomas Ermacora. I will read a quick biography as usual. Thomas Ermacora is a city futurist, impact investor, and open innovation thinker working to leverage the tools of the fourth industrial revolution and novel urban strategies to solve some of humanity's, humanity's most pressing problems with a focus on climate adaptation and community well-being. He wants to redefine the way cities and neighborhoods self-organize through participatory processes and support strategic change-making and scaling of planetary stewardship movement. He has always been interested in regenerative uh, civilization and its early manifestation coming from crowdsourcing climate solution. Um, welcome, Thomas. Thank you, Giancarlo. So I just... As usual, in a couple of minutes, I'll have to give some context on, on, on why Thomas is with us. Um, as you guys know by now, Mango TV was started mostly as um, documenting the psychedelic um, scientific revolution, if you want. And then from there, we move into this concept of, of regeneration. You know, what does it mean to, to keep on reinventing yourself? And what's the difference with transformation and with evolution? And the idea of, um, you know, the, the container where we live, the cities, this um, idea of community that we explore with Bruce Perry in his documentary has been, is not only critical to us, but is critical to the fate of this planet. So Thomas is an expert on that. He's an expert on um, civilization design and urban design. So we're going to pick his brain. <laughs> But first, um, let us know a little bit how the, your personal journey began. Thank you, Giancarlo. Um, I would go back to 1992 when uh, the first uh, World um, Summit happened in Rio and um, the world was gathered around what was at the time known as the Brundtland Report, written in 1987, defining the next stage of what one could call the limits of growth of the way that humans you live on this planet. And if in 1973 we started to have scientific evidence of overstretching ourselves on this planet, in 1987 it became a lot clearer and climate scientists were starting to have the consensus necessary to impact policy. And in 1992 there was a movement to create the summit which later became the COPS. And uh, there was a rise of youth, you could call it, after 1989 with the fall of the Berlin Wall. There was you know, a new energy around and if the end of history had begun, as Francis Fukuyama um, cornered it, um, where we should all live in a you know, Western democratic civilization and gradually impact that on the rest of the world. Very hopeful thought, which of course hasn't manifested. Mm. Um, So in 1992, uh, there was this effervescence um, around youth and it gave me as a young man, I was not a man yet, I was uh, only 16, actually less, you know, just, just under 16, the opportunity to connect with lots of other young souls. And what you see today with Greta, you know, was at the time a little bit similar. 
So that was my ignition point where I knew that, um, you know, ideologies and things that drove most people uh, and the generations prior to mine were not really the things that we would fight for. And we would fight for maybe something we could call planetary stewardship and, you know, finding our peace with nature. And that was very mm, conscious as a decision for me to, you know, embed myself in that movement. I didn't know where to start. Uh, I didn't know what I was going to be, uh, but I knew I was going to work on that. And then the entry point was architecture. In, in, in sorts, yes. Uh, so I studied uh, physical chemistry engineering to start uh, in America at Northwestern. And um, I discovered psychedelics and that took me away <laughs> from, uh, I discovered psychedelics and women at the same time. And that was very confusing and jarring to my scientific mind. <laughs> so um, it was, uh, let's say, enough of an incentive for me to explore the humanities and philosophy. And I studied ethics and you know, the German philosophers, etc. And gradually, you know, the reason why I went to physical chemistry was to study thermonuclear energy and be part of the fusion uh, journey. As you may know, we, we may become commercial fusion, you know, um, be able to manifest commercial fusion within the next couple of decades, which would be really exciting for endless cheap energy, which would probably redefine the maps. But Can you maybe explain commercial fusion? Yes. So as you know, nuclear power today is mostly or 99% um, you know, derived from uh, fission, which is actually, you know, we are using we're using radioactivity uh, to you know, create energy, and then we have to contain that radioactivity. In fusion, you know, we create a context where um, uh, atoms uh, collide and they fuse, and that releases enormous amounts of energy. And the way that we had found out that we could do this was to create what's called a plasma, which is uh, more or less like being a little sun. Um, and uh, we just, you were using magnets, uh, it's called a, um, a tokamak. Uh, and still today, we're working some of the similar technology, even though we're evolving this towards laser technology, right, gradually. But basically, you know, you had to create, uh, use a huge amount of energy and still have to, uh, to create a magnetic field that can contain this high temperature plasma in which uh, atoms of um, hydrogen and deuterium uh, can fuse and release extraordinary amounts of energy. So this, you know, to simplify it, you know, this is something that, you know, we want to uh, be able to do and we're gradually getting to do it. But there hasn't been a way to control this and produce more energy than we consume. If I may, I'm, I'm going to quickly transition to what you mentioned, architecture, because yeah. I think that's, that's um, you know, it, it'll give the lens on that and how, how I look at the world. Mm -hmm. um, so effectively, you know, I went through science and the humanities uh, and gradually migrated towards uh, geography, you know, you could say macro thinking. Um, and I started a, an architecture studio with my ex-wife, which focused on eco-construction. My thesis was on intentional communities and how the internet could reactivate rural villages. Uh, so I was one of the early proponents of what you call urbanism. Wow. Um, and this was you know, more than 20 years ago. Uh, so I visited all the intentional communities and, um, and realized that they were unnetworked. They were quite technology averse. Uh, and just not ready for the 21st century. On purpose, maybe. Well, yes, there was an ideological resistance to technology because technology had led to industrialism and industrialism had led to us having to flee back to, you know, let's say, neo-bucalism. Um, so I would say that if I have to connect this journey of, of me being somewhere between design, tech and civilization in my career, um, 
I see cities as a perfect way to sort of frame the questions uh, because we're not very good at living together well, one, and we're not very good at living on this planet, um, you know, uh, heading towards 10 billion in this century. So uh, how, how can we solve many problems at once? I think we need to think systemically. And the cities for me is just a natural, you know, uh, systemic lens. It's not because I love cities only, it's just because I think it facilitates the conversation and the thinking to derive the intelligence that we need to become at a planetary scale, you know, biomimics that can integrate within the flow of nature, which we've failed to do so far. So the fifth industrial revolution for me is the one of biomimicry. Other people will tell you otherwise, but right now we're very mechanistic and I really believe that, you know, we are uh, at the dawn of our technological capability and consciousness capability to embrace what I consider the fifth industrial revolution. Biomimicry is uh, understanding nature operating principle and being in harmony with that. Absolutely. It's also, I would say, first and foremost, learning from five billion years of evolution. If you look at, you know, one of my greatest mentors was a person called Jay Harmon, who, um, is a biomimicry designer. He is the inventor of what's called the impeller, which um, he froze his bathtub and looked at the vortex. And then he reverse engineered the vortex mathematically to create the shape necessary to induce a vortex in air and water. So he understood through that it can create exceptional uh, optimizations. Uh, so for example, the fastest train in the world uh, was designed on the basis of the beak of a bird. Uh, so it's all these things. I see. We basically are starting to understand again through technology and mathematics, computation, big data analysis, we can derive a huge amount of information from the catalog of yeah. life. Yeah, which, which we're not doing in health, for example, where you look for linear solution to complex problem like nature is doing. If you think about, you know, you're a system thinker and a futurist. So you see this, imagine you are a, extraterrestrial who see this blue planet, what do you see are the main problems? And then we go into the solutions. Well, again, I don't have a crystal ball. <laughs> um, so, you know, I'm, I'm a, what I call a hands-on futurist, you know, I'm experimenting um, to, I'm testing with people what might be ways of, you know, living more harmoniously with nature um, and ourselves, I suppose, in the way uh, or on the way. Um, so, I, I see four big uh, issues. obstacles, yeah. I'll call them, rather than problems, yeah. um, because problems call for solutions, and solutions can be a little bit uh, too radical of an expression of solving to mm. me. Uh, I think sometimes you know you you need to flow into a direction that's that is a solving direction, but solving can be a bit like oh problem fix problem fix. If you go into this pathway of problem fix problem fix. You generate new problems as you go along. I understand. If you look at nature, the power of it is that there is no problem generated in the flow of nature. So um, it's all of constant flow. Exactly, and so the notion of problem does not exist in nature. Uh, we've invented the word problem. <laughs> also, the word issues bring the idea of uh, of reparation of, of of some sort of solution. Yes, I see them as obstacles. Mm -hmm. And so, if you look again at the flow of a river. Uh, you arrive at a place and there's a cataract and you, you have to, nature has to overcome it. But it, it, do it, it does it with time. It does it with erosion. It does it with weather. It does it, et cetera. And then 
you know, the river finds its way. Okay. So, so I'm uh, the, the four obstacles that I see. Um, the, the first one is, you know, what I would call, you know, what we have broadly called global consciousness is misaligned. And so we're, we're still in sort of cultural struggle. We still fight for, you know, notions of territory, notions of who's who and what's what and who owns what. And, uh, you know, we haven't upgraded our global OS uh, to a level of, you know, um, I'd call it localistic governance that's, you know, capable of aligning with nature's systems. So bioregionalism is an example of, you know, alignment. We've got geographical separation uh, between, you know, how human societies operate and how nature's code operates. And, you know, we, we, we may not redraw the maps administratively, but we can do it functionally. So, for example, we can rethink riverbeds and work between countries and really rethink the way that we integrate nature and we integrate with, you know, with, with life systems. Transcending frontier. Transce that's beautifully said, you know, to transcend the borders we've invented so that we can reconnect with that. And as we do so, uh, you know, we just have to have a lot more intelligence around that. So I'm very connected to the satellite intelligence community because space is our main resource to, to re-engineer re our relationship with the planet. We know of climate science because of space. And people forget that. They're like, no, 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 don't go to space. It's a waste of fuel. It's a waste of time. You know, we don't need to go to Mars. Mars is not about Mars. Mars is about Earth. Um, because this technology or these technologies are giving us the tools to reinvent our relationship to nature on Earth. But why, why, why the Mars? Because to have an independent, detached perspective? No, it's because the technological challenge generates the impetus commercially to be able to capable to release the technology that we need to put out low-cost satellites. I see. I see. And why those are important? So are you familiar with Planet Labs? So Planet Labs is uh, a fleet of satellites. There's about two, three hundred now going around the world. It takes an image of the, of the Earth every day, uh, a resolution of one meter. It can't see a face, but it can see a tree. It can see, you know, a tank. So with the Ukrainian conflict, we could see, thanks to Planet Labs and Will Marshall as the founder, as a dear friend, uh, effectively, you know, we can put eyes on things that reveal the truth. Before, we would have to wait for weeks and it was too late. Now we can know when deer of deforestation incidents happen the next day. And they're working with, you know, 80 governments around the world to empower us to make those, you know, visual decisions, which I think are so essential. Anyway, so if we go back to... Obstacle one. Obstacle one. Yeah, I think that is an obstacle of, you know, recognizing uh, that we need to rethink the way that we uh, operate on the Earth map. Um, and as a geographer by training, um, you know, this is something really essential. Um, and, you know, uh, many people, I think, are underestimating the importance of this uh, transition we're going through. Thank you to spatial technology. But what are the symptoms right now of not doing that? The symptoms right now is that we're poorly, um, let's say, um, correlating nature systems with human systems. So we're always in, we always sort of overly impact, overstretch resources and utilization because we're not using the data that we have to, you know, say, well, this is absurd. We're killing this river bed. We are, you know, uh, not understanding that, you know, we're not going to have, we're going to have uh, you know, water shortages in the next 10 years. And so these will create massive um, shortages and stresses on many cultures and places because of climate change, for example. Because we believe that we own nature rather than part of nature. There's that. 
Absolutely. And why is that, you think? Where does that come from? From Descartes and the excessive intellectualization that, they create, that has created this separation? What's... Well, it may be. Um, I have a more simplistic way of looking at it, at it which is simply the, the rhythm of history. Mm. Uh, has not given us the tools to understand, look at ourselves. We have not had a mirror. So uh, space has given us a mirror. In the West, because in the East there was a huge mirror. It's true and not, because if you look at China, for example, um, one of the oldest civilizations, you know, they went through catastrophic, cataclysmic destruction of their own natural uh, capital. Uh, and incidentally, the Chinese government has still been the most powerful regenerative, um, you know, government with the Lus Plateau, which was a completely abandoned, destroyed, you know, it was with almost the cradle of civilization that had become totally deteriorated. And they regenerated that. We're talking about thousands of hectares. And now the whole Yangtze River no longer has these dust storms, which was, you know, crippling people, giving them, you know, pollution and, you know, lung cancer. So, you know, they've shown the way on a massive scale for what we're doing in a very small scale with regenerative farming. So, so basically, for whatever, you know, the course of history has brought to us, we, have, we are disconnected from nature. And so we, without having this harmonious relationship, we have this fracture um, that, 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 that has created this, 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 this connection from nature, na from nature and not being able to look at the sign. Like the Kogi said years ago, they said, you know, from Santa Marta in Colombia, these tribes had a clear understanding of the impact of civilization on nature because they were in this mountain that would go from snow to the sea level. And they, they told that, they told us, be careful because human activities are, are disrupting this, this uh, natural, um, uh, natural cycles. So what you're saying, obstacle number one is to, you know, reconnect and, and, and transcend the border, transcend the frontier, and see at, at this, at, at nature as a, as a common good that needs to be preserved. But, um, yeah, that's easier said than done. Yeah, I mean, it is easier said than done. But the reason why I see this is so essential is because once you know what you're doing wrong, you can do something about it. Yeah. And it's, undis um, you know, you, you cannot, uh, um, images don't lie. And, and that's something that most cultures can understand. And we did not have these tools very recently. You know, we're talking about two years ago. So it's a complete transformation in our global awareness that does not require consciousness elevation. So what we've been trying to do, you know, as regenerative culture, um, you could say activists over the past decades, is we've been trying to, you know, ignite this uh, relationship with nature and relationship with self, you know, that would give us this, you know, more planetary consciousness. But that hasn't really been permeating in, let's say, the 99% of the world. You know, if we're lucky to have 10% of the world who thinks roughly like us, you know, that's not going to be enough. Well, there are arguments for which 4% is the critical mass to start a movement, etc. You know, we can discuss this from a sort of activistic point of view, what that, you know, boundary is, uh, or threshold for critical mass. However, you know, I definitely think we need a lot more people to be on our side. And once you have these technologies, then, you know, this awakening is no longer necessary through 
you know, greater consciousness, it's purely imagery. So let me ask you again, sorry, Thomas, I just want to make sure that we can simplify that. So this technology, it's satellite imagery that shows what exactly? It, it, so I'll give you a concrete example. If there was a, you know, illegal logging happening in the Amazon, you know, there's an image, you know, Monday and an image Tuesday, and you can see literally which trees were taken off. How many? Etc. And you say, well, this just happened. How can you disqualify that? So you have evidence that's unquestionable. Um, you know, can you tamper with it? Yes. You know, we have cyber warfare. Uh, however, they are one of the most, you know, cyber um, criminality proof organizations currently because of they them working with 80 governments. What's the name of the organization again? Planet Labs. Planet Labs. We'll put it on the show notes. Yes. I mean, you know, I don't want to stress the power of technology here, but what I want to stress is to not be technology averse. Mm -hmm. You know, I see a big risk in, and that's actually my obstacle number two, is this sort of leaning towards, you know, technology up utopia or technophobia. So many people are, you know, going back to the land and that's fantastic, but it shouldn't go against the grain of us leveraging technology that we have that are helping us. Um, and I think there's a, there's a real risk here in a rift between, let's say, the pro-technology and, you know, uh, against technology, uh, to simplify it. And, and, and that's an obstacle of education. It's an obstacle that I see as very, you know, technology literacy that we need to, to, to really confront. Because if we, if we don't do that, we're not going to have the 90% with us. And there's no better way with, you know, within 10 years, having everyone almost online, which has its own problems. I'm not saying it's great to have everyone on, in the world online. I'm saying there are great opportunities with it. So make, let's make sure we work with the opportunities rather than let it happen and make it take us over. Yeah, that's why I wanted you to have in, the, your, in this podcast because, you know, in, in, in certain... I don't know how to call them, but you know the, the 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 modern activist or the modern seeker or the third millennium paradigm shifters. There is this association with technology with the deep state and the and the and the and the evil of the world. But so this is very important that there are company like this one that can map not just the you know deforestation but the pollution of the river and the, and the and the um, aridification of the land and the loss of biodiversity and etc exactly. okay so so i don't want to get lost in obstacle and solution so obstacle, obstacle one we are looking at this uh, new, new technology from satellite imagery obstacle two is like obstacle two is the uh, technology aversion, and how do we address that? So in terms of um, getting people on board, um, I, I believe in two important aspects. The, the, the first one is so I, a few years back, uh, I was invited to, um, I had my Galileo Galilei moment, um, invited to speak at the Pontifical Academy of Sciences at the Vatican wow. for the Pope um, as a futurist. And so they invited three people to ask, as the church, um, the Catholic church was dealing with the reputational problems, which I you know, may not mention. So I'm not very Christian myself, um, but I accepted the, the offer because uh, it is the largest you know, institution in the world, more than a billion followers. If we can get a billion people to think in a certain way, yeah. certainly can move a needle. Yeah, it's definitely an intentional community. <laughs> definitely, <laughs> that, that's for sure. Um, so sometimes again, it's own its own will, but um, so, <laughs> Sorry. Might, might, lose the purity, <laughs> might lose the purity of the intention. Yes. But the commandments are there. They and, are. And they're right. <laughs> and they're, you know, anyhow. 
So, yeah, this is a longer debate between us. We're going to have you back in the podcast for that. <laughs> Thank you. So, um, so I was asked to to reflect on the question: If the Catholic Church um, was the largest, you know, known institution to mankind ever in history, uh, and it has mostly been known for doing, you know, poor things to mankind, not being very kind to men, um, you know, how do you address this in the 21st century? And I came from running the largest and first impact maker space in London in my community. And, um, you know, we were effectively training artists and, you know, technology averse communities to technology to uh, let them see, uh, you know, have insights on how they could leverage technology to their benefit. Because, you know, obviously technology is moving faster than people. And so if people are not updating themselves, they become outskilled. And I want to upskill them so that yeah, they participate. Yeah. So um, I guess the example I'm using here is we need to be able to educate people through, um, you know, just like we're retraining people in farming, which I think is one of the most important things currently happening. Uh, I think we also need to retrain people in technology in which they can participate. Because what happened for centuries was technology was not defining exclusion. It was defining, you know, the change of work. It was defining the change of society, but not exclusion. We now have technologies that develop exclusion in, in situ and at very high speed. Um, so we need to be able to generate participation, I think, in technology. And uh, that only happens through environments of technology literacy that empower communities to take ownership of it. Education, education, education. Education and, and education and doing. So entrepreneurship or education, entrepreneurship in a community setting mm -hmm. on a place-based intelligence level. Meaning it's not something that you do for the world. It's not trying to create a startup that will be a unicorn. It's trying to see what is a problem in your community, sorry for problem, an obstacle in your community that you may be able to address with some technology. So example, uh, in my neighborhood in London, we were in East London, we were where I started the largest independent cultural incubator uh, in, in, in the UK. Uh, called the Lime Wharf, which is still there, but you know now it's just a self self uh, um, organizing community uh, of professionals because I don't live there anymore. But I was, a, you know, I designed it, uh, a set of buildings, and I curated them. And over over time, it it gradually became an incubator for circular economics at the neighborhood level with the help of eleven institutions, including MIT. We co-founded the Fab City Initiative with MIT, uh, where I was a fellow. And we also got funding from, um, you know, uh, Alto University and um, a, a range of European institutions to modelize, for example, waste streams that could be upcycled in a neighborhood. So we were taking milk cartons and making um, objects for the homeless uh, out of them. And so looking repur at that. repurposing. Repurposing waste and uh, training people in technology and, you know, creating new business opportunities. And, you know, giving new opportunities to those who were excluded. This was, this was, you know, we're talking about a few dozen thousand pounds that, you know, has been used as a blueprint for neighborhood circularity. And, you know, I really believe in these things because they're uh, fundamentally prototyping and experimenting with what neighborhoods can do. And so what intentional communities were trying to do in an extracted way from normal society, we can try and do back in cities, in communities, in neighborhoods. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting. So, so the the power of um, you know practical application of technology on the on the community level. Empowering technology. Empower yeah, yeah. 
Um, would you do you have an obstacle number three? Yes. <laughs> so, so obstacle number three for me is a bit more um, what you could call sophisticated um, because it requires um, you know to it, it requires a lengthy patient process to deal with uh, the intricacies of our governance uh, economic models. Mm. Um, and, you know, we've created a very um, dynamic and complex uh, world system ecology of governance tools that's not very favorable uh, and mutable. Uh, we see, for example, with cryptocurrencies that, you know, whether we like them or not, you know, they're a necessary player in changing the way that we do disintermediation from, uh, let's say, the owners uh, and the users of capital. Um, and we have too many layers of intermediaries, and we need to cut that and decentralize more. And, um, you know, if the journey of the first three industrial revolutions was centralization, the journey of the fourth one is decentralization. Um, and um, we can see that friction between those, you know, two centuries of centralization, uh, or even you could say two millennia, um, and this very fast journey of the past two, de two decades uh, gradually moving to decentralization. So I, the obstacle for me is um, to, in terms of leadership, we need to educate leaders to be more accepting of the changes that need to happen in order for them to find their natural friction with world systems so that they can create their new format. It's not about breaking the old only. It's about shaping the old with uh, the, the new with the old. And so this bridging, it needs to happen through leadership intelligence. And we see certain mayors in certain countries. For example, the mayor of Miami embraced crypto. What has it done? Miami is the fastest growing city in America. And it's partly because of his technology readiness. Let me, sorry to interrupt. Before we go into the solution, why is um, centralization bad? That's a long uh, uh, one. However, um, I would say just to, again, in my view, uh, there are many views on this, um, but the first one is that it's the further away you are removed from a problem or an obstacle, uh, the less you're likely to make the right decision. So centralization creates a distance from the issue at hand that doesn't make you the qualified decision maker. So it is empowering. Disempowering, distancing, and yeah. Ultimately, I really believe in the karma that we are, you know, putting into decision making, leadership, etc. If you keep making wrong decisions, you piss off people. Yeah. If you piss off people, you disempower them, and their reaction is revolt, not contribution and participation. That's what happened with the authoritarian regime from the right of the of the, of the communists. Exactly. So centralization leads to poor decisions, and central and poor decisions leads to, you know. Um, I would say, um, allergic social reactions. And allergic social reactions can be beneficial to interrupt the path of centralization or authoritarianism. So I'm not disqualifying, you know, I'm deeply involved with the strategy uh, with uh, Extinction Rebellion. So I believe in those methodologies to do nonviolent, you know, revolution, if you want. Um, but I disagree with the fact that the path of history, which is accelerated through technology, needs to necessarily go through the frame of revolution. There are many, many, many places, many, many things that we can address with intelligence rather than revolt. I see. So 
the example you were suggesting to get out of the centralization model into the decentralization model, you mentioned crypto and the blockchain. Maybe you want to explain a little bit better for people that are not familiar. Sure. So um, I don't want to sound like a you know uh, technology uh, fan here because that's not kind of my my personal life journey. You know, I embrace technology from the standpoint that. It's there, and if we disagree with it too strongly, it will actually win, uh, you know, the arm wrestle. You know, it, it's sort of fighting a robot is very difficult. Um, and uh, so I, I want to, you know, sort of weave a relation with technology that empowers humans and give human hu technology a human face. So I want to mention this because otherwise I fear that, you know, this podcast would sound like, you know, I'm trying to you know, impose technology. So in terms of the, the, the decentralization kind of, you know, uh, opportunities, I would call them. Uh, yes, there's, you know, uh, the blockchains, um, but there, there are a lot of other things. You know, for example, um, I've been one of the pioneers of what you can call the participatory placemaking movement. Mm -hmm. So I'm one of the co-founders of a thing called Placemaking X. Um, and uh, I wrote a book called The Recoded City, which is today the manual for how to do participatory placemaking. So first of all, it's participatory. Well, it's self-explanatory, but it, it means that you're creating the opportunity for those who are not experts to participate in the journey of change that they will be ultimately the recipients of. And traditionally, when you look at urban planning and urban design, you know, communities are recipients of them. They're not the makers of it. And if you look at intentional communities, for example, that was the strength of them is that communities were deciding how they would shape their life and they would then live in that container. So most cities are not designed that way. And with where we are in history and where we are as people, the opportunity of participation exists. Placemaking is just broadly, you know, the slew of professions. So I'm an architect, an urbanist, a placemaker, a, you know, designer, a, you know, so I, all these things, they sit in that box. So I'm called a professional. But, it, but for example, if you were not, Giancarlo, a professional in placemaking, uh, I still consider you a placemaker if you're given the right opportunity. So it's giving the tools of designers to those who are non-designers was the journey I was on. And I created an, a non-profit organization, the first of its kind in 2008 called Clear Village, because that's basically what I've been working on many, 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 many years uh, to look at, you know, these intentional communities. What were their manifestation in the 21st century? Well, are you familiar with the Dunbar number? Is that something you've heard of? It's the minimum number where people get along, 130, something like that? Yes, it's um, a primatologist called Robin Dunbar yeah. who looked at the optimum primate, yeah. say, yeah. a primate group size. Yeah. And so it's roughly 140. 140, yeah. And, um, you know, it, all it means is that we've been evolutionarily conditioned to optimize our group size and entente uh, roughly at that number. Because because it's it's enough people to have diversity, but not so much to have anonymity. There's that part. And there's also purely how you organize, you know, food, parenting, uh, sexuality, spirituality. You know, there is a sort of optimum critical number that, we, that you need. And then if you go past that number, then your brain shuts off and you start to have, let's say, relations that are less um, intense or intent. And then you lose quality in relations. And what we have today is the dilution of relational quality through social media. Yeah, I mean, dilution is a euphemism. It's like fracture even. Yes, but I, I, I like to be optimistic yeah. with the fact that we're still in generation one social media. You know, we're still learning. It's a new tool. 
so I don't want to just disqualify social media. It's mm. brought fantastic things too. We wouldn't have had, you know, the uh, Arab Spring, you know, potentially. Is the Arab Spring good or bad? I don't want to put a name on it. But there are things that we need to accept that social media can be used for. So anyway, um, so I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the uh, aspect of, you know, this third obstacle around, uh, you know, decentralization. Um, and uh, I, I, I strongly believe that from an analog or digital perspective, you can create participation frameworks uh, that engage, you know, citizen contribution, uh, participation, that really create a buy-in and co-ownership of the issues at hand. And once you do that, you know, whether you, su you succeed or you fail, you feel differently. And I think there's a problem with the feeling we have towards history. People, young people, you know, for the first time almost in, you know, in known history, you know, think that tomorrow will be worse than yesterday. And this is, this is the first time we have this absolutely overwhelming feeling. So there's a feeling of impending doom. And that's not empowering. And knowing that it's going to be worse doesn't mean that it's going to be worse, but you may disengage. And if you disengage, there's too much to do. And, and once you do, you feel better. <laughs> so I'm a big believer in participation. But so, sorry, if this is a stupid question, but uh, participatory um, placemaking, the word place relates to your physical house. Not only, but you're your right. Your community, your... So placemaking can be a hybrid of, you know, we're now entering, you know, Web3 and metaverses. So I'm not putting... The physicality of it. Uh, I would say there's a dominance of physicality because the, um, uh, let's say, the information quotient that you have in physical expression is so much higher than the digital. The digital is like a compressed reality. So it's true that it empowers us to do incredible things at distance, and I'm not disqualifying that. But just you and me sitting in this room, I'm sorry, Giancarlo, we're exchanging pheromones, whether you like it or not. <laughs> I'm, very, I'm very glad to do so. <laughs> so, um, so that's, you know, it would, be a, um, it would be unfortunate for people to, you know, uh, ignore as we go forward and in time uh, that this contact landscape, the, the physicality of the world is incredibly information loaded. And that our brain only captures, you know, such a small fracture and our consciousness captures maybe a thousand times more than our, you know, conscious mind. But um, uh, it's, it's just, I would prefer to consider place in majority at this moment still a physical thing. Yes. So for me, and I think for the Mango TV listener, for our community, this idea of, um, of, of, of building community is critical. And so... Um, how do you recommend people go about, I mean, do you recommend people to find 130 people to live with? So I think they already have them. You know, the, the beauty of our current world is there's no lack of contact. If you, you know, it's, it's easy to get in contact with people in most of the world because there's a lot more people than there used to be. So in the, in, in, throughout human history, we had to look for people and create committees. Now we kind of have to dissociate for communities because there are too many people around us. And then we have to reinvent our sense of community. Uh, so I think that the, 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 the three key things there is to one is to really put effort towards, you know, deep friendships and recognize, you know, the importance of contact interactions um, that are high leverage on our psychology. Call it communal farming. Call it, you know, 
uh, communal lovemaking. That doesn't mean polyamory. It just means being in the same room with people that you care for uh, at a family moment. Um, so I think these are things that we need to really put attention towards. And there are ways to do so through activities. And most of our jobs today have been designed to alienate us from these moments. So COVID was very healthy in that respect, where we were actually conditioned to have to rekindle those powerful moments of contact with others. The second thing is the placemaking element. Um, you know, can you associate with an environment in which you are more embedded and more deeply embedded in contributing? If you're only a visitor and a, uh, I'll call it a tourist of a place, many people now are very nomadic. And uh, I think it's essential that people, you know, feel that they can be nomadic, but they can also be very rooted in a place. Um, so that's this, this idea of rooting in a place that I think is essential. Some people have more than one. I have more than one. It's just the nature of my history, uh, the nature of me being multicultural and growing up in you know many countries. Um, and then the third thing, uh, you know, is to look at the um, the associations between uh, your, you know, I would say spiritual relation to life um, and the manifestation through your tribalium, your work, you know, what, whatever you choose your work to be, whether it is being an artist, a politician, or a contemplator, whatever it is, you know, your role, um, you know, should be, you know, um, manifesting in place and be identifiable. You see many people who are ghosts, who effectively just live somewhere. And, you know, they, they are not in the place. And therefore, you know, it's hard for them to associate meaning with where they are. And I think that's essential in the power of Ibiza today. I think really um, for many of, of our friends who live on this island and probably why we're drawn to it ourselves is because we have an opportunity at every moment of the day to deeply connect with, you know, kin, um, you know um, kindred spirits and uh, people who through their work uh, or expression of self uh, are are not absent. They're present. Try to do that in New York. Good luck. Um, do you know this English writer, John Harry? He wrote um, this book on depression, debunking the clinical trial and the, this idea that depression is a... It's a chemical imbalance and, 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 you know, he spent like, I don't know how many years really studying, um, the origin of depression and, and mostly comes from lack of community and lack of connection. Absolutely. So the like-minded community is not really available that easily. And, um, and so, you know, I feel that, um, what would you, may, may I disagree? Yeah, of course. That's what we're here for. <laughs> so, for some people, it's very difficult to create the 130 people and the authentic relationship and the connected relationship that give them this, the, 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 the supportive emotional container that allow to find their purpose and not being a ghost. For some people, it's not a choice. It's not an option. Mm -hmm. I cannot, uh, you know, I, I can only agree with what you're saying. And, and, and it's actually from that observation that I start my, my, my analysis. Uh, so with, with my wife, uh, Kalia, uh, we're very involved in obviously the psychedelic Renaissance movement and also mental wellness, mental health, mental health and wellness. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the things that we connected on, uh, in the sort of beginning of our relationship, uh, really was this, you know, I was 
thinking about how to build the containers for communities. And she was thinking more about how to prepare the person to be able to enter a container. So it's a dualistic relationship that currently is being uh, impacted by a combination of factors of stress. One is technology, uh, two is the speed of or velocity of history. You know, so things change very fast and we have to deal with those. Um, and, you know, overall, you know, there are lots of stressors and we get information about the stresses in our lives, you know, at lightning speed. Um, when, you know, there was a, a, an earthquake two miles away from where you lived in the past, you know, you would maybe feel a shake, but you wouldn't know that, you know, 200 people had died two minutes before and now you know it immediately. And whether we like that or not, um, you know, whether it's good or bad to have immediate information, it does impact your your uh, uh, awareness and your availability to be in community and with yourself. So um, why did I, did I say I disagree with you is because I think that um, the opportunity to be in community exists everywhere. Um, not equally, for sure. Um, you know, there are places where there's trauma, there are places where there's not enough um, communion of, um, you know, of ideas so that people can let themselves go. Um, you know, so I'm not going to say I'm not an, uh, an idealist in that respect, but even in the worst places in the world, you know, I was involved in the humanitarian effort in Ukraine, you see glimmers of hope that are just phenomenal. The sparks of humanity sit within us. They're not outside of us. And if people were able to reconnect with that strength that's within them, I do think that they can open themselves up more readily to connect with others. And once they do that, it's a, I see this as a journey of community building. And once you start the journey, it gets better and better and better. And it's a healing path. And of course, you find lots of, you know, um, friction with reality. <laughs> so I'm not, again, an optimist purely. Um, but I do think that uh, we have unlearned what we would do naturally because we get our needs met through materialistic conditioning. And before we were getting our needs met through actions that would embed us into nature and life and relations. Mm. So, for example, if you earn your living by being on a computer all day, then, you know, again, I'm not disqualifying that. But when is the moment that you're going to have to go out, you know, and touch a potato in the ground and meet another person and exchange eye contact? And you're taking all that away. So I think we need to build the opportunities for people to create those points of connect so that they get extracted from, you know, their need to feed themselves, you know, or, you know, just through money. So that money buys them the life that they don't want into, you know, the moments that we need to have in order to, you know, create the conditions for our hearts to open to the other. And I really think we've invented that civilization in that poor civilization design. So how do we do that? How do we give people this opportunity? Well, you have a guest coming, I believe, uh, today, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, who's a, a magnificent example of experimenting with that. Yeah. So Tierra Iris here on the island of Ibiza um, is, you know, an organically growing uh, growth community and um, focused on regenerative farming, you could say, um, and, and collaborative farming. But, you know, it, it's... It's this idea that uh, you're not programming the outcome, you're programming the interaction. Nice. So we, we are consistently programming outcomes in everything that we do now. Interesting. In modern civilization, we're so focused on the okay. monetization 
of things and their economic trick value in a value chain that's, you know, extracted from our natural reality, that, you know, we are slaves to that. We're not slaves just to the system. We're slaves to the need to that duty to the outcome. Yeah. Um, because that's ultimately how, you know, we're greasing the wheel uh, of capital. And um, so I'm not an anti-capitalist, for example. Uh, I'm not saying it's the ultimate, you know, solution, but I definitely think we need to put a lot of effort towards thinking about how we can create more situations where we're not designing the outcome, but we're designing the interaction. This is fascinating, and it makes me think about biomimicry again. Um, but so, okay, so basically you're suggesting that one of the ways to create community is to physically go and live together somewhere. So although like in Wales now, like the, there are like special law that allow communal living and, and um, you know, Mango TV um, developed, is developing a TV show called Post-Capitalistic Societies where we would have a host go and live for a month in Pachamama, Oroville, Finghorn, Damanhur, Tamera, all this intentional community, we did Tamera. And what resonates from there is that, you know, what once you live in community, you want to make sure that you address the psychological mechanism that uh, were an obstacle in, 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 in the default society, if you want, which is mostly had to do with looking at reality through the prism of your own ego. And so in Tamera, they work on that like every week, every week, every, like four times a week they meet and they use this term that they mirror each other on a community level. So once the trust and the love has been developed, so people know that they've been mirrored out of love, not out of, out of you know, spite of mockery, then, so I'm, I want to say that I just want to put out there that you know living in community is very difficult, <laughs> and 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 I think that you know like there is the the the, the metaphor that you know if a, if a plane is in trouble and is crashing or something you know before you help other people people you want to put the oxygen mask to you first, so I think that with you know if if the advice for people that are um, you know alienated and 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 suffer with the with depression and. If the, the, the advice is, okay, try to find a group of like-minded people to live physically together, there is a lot of, of, of you know, mental, psychological work to try to really deal with your blind spot. Because then, otherwise, everybody's blind spot on a communal level would just expand the blind spot. <laughs> Do you want to comment on that? You have a psychologist that. wife. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um. Uh, no, what you said is beautiful, and and I I, I really deeply resonate with it. Um, you know these intentional communities. You know Finholm, Tamera, Oroville. You know are what I wrote my thesis about twenty years ago, and, wow. and and they were they were, you know they were exemplars in you know again designing the interactions rather than the outcomes. Um, and uh, you know where where does that stand for me in terms of where we are? Where the there are. Um, Unfortunately, too few places that have the, you know, you, you have to almost leave the contemporary world uh, and extract yourself from it to build another reality so that you can re-engineer those relationships and interactions that are meaningful to community and to self. That's unfortunate. It's, it's not only unfortunate, it's, it's a tragedy. 
Um, and, uh, you know, it, it is potentially, you know, one of the main reasons why we would, you know, um, collapse, you know, to, co to quote Jared Diamond, you know, um, theory of civilizational collapse. And at this moment in, in, in time, I still want to stay optimistic um, because I find that the great challenges that we're facing as a humanity, um, you know, are, are actually great motivators. Um, so it's unfortunate we have to get so close to the wall uh, or to the cliff. Um, but, but ultimately, that, that may be what's necessary. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not, again, very religious, but in the Baha'i faith, you know, there's a sort of uh, a saying around, you know, the, the, the prophet Baha'u'llah, who effectively announced that there would be, you know, a great crash that would, you know, create, you know, the, the greater peace. Um, and, you know, there's, there's the small peace and the great peace. And, the, 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 um, and I, I quite like this sort of um, imagery because I definitely think that we're, we're, we're still quite far from the great peace. Um, and maybe the great peace is, is only, you know, uh, a limit that we lean towards, you know, in our collective consciousness and planetary awareness. And, and, and we're always, you know, making smaller pieces uh, with ourselves and, and, and with the planet. Um, but overall, you know, I think we're facing this you know, wall or cliff uh, from climate extinction, you know, we're in, and we're, we're, we're definitely sort of um, more self-aware than we've been, uh, that, uh, you know, things going business as usual is not particularly friendly to many. Mm -hmm. So I guess where what I wanted to respond to regarding your, your observation is that there is a, um, there is an opportunity I believe, uh, to expand this, call it discrete innovation and experimentation that intentional communities have manifested over the past few years. You know, uh, I consider we're generation four intentional communities, uh, Oroville's generation two, uh, Tamara as well. Um, and we can go through these generations if you want, but uh, we're now in the process of gen doing generation four. And, um, there's an opportunity to look at these in many, many, many places of the world that do not require this abstraction from the world we live in. Uh, and that's partly thanks to digital technologies, actually, because we can start to build neighborhood relations and reactivate those things. And, you know, we're seeing more and more tools for mental health, you know, being straight from your phone. And, you know, is that good or bad? I'm not going to put a qualifier. I just think let's use every tool we have um, so that we can activate more people uh, to give them the um, uh, energy, I would say, and the the the, the sort of uh, willpower to step into the zone of interaction that will facilitate community building and ultimately be these mirrors that you need in many, many, many geographies. Uh, so you know, this is what some people call cosmolocalism. You know, so that we are basically able to be, you know, cosmopolitan, localistic individuals. So some people call it, you know, a new form of boho. <laughs> because it's a bit, you know, people who are wealthy who can do this, you know, smart nomads go from left to right and always feel that they're cosmopolitan, even if they live in a village. Uh, so, you know, the, uh, the the super luxurious village for the few, that's, you know, very green and eco, you know, kind of earthship almost like um, that's, it would be unfortunate if it was just left for the few. Um, but I definitely think it's not only that. And we see some of the happiest communities are, uh, interestingly, I was involved in uh, setting up a refugee education program with MIT. Uh, so we co-founded this program and, and brought it to Jordan. And we, we trained refugees 
um, in artificial intelligence, uh, big data, um, you know, robotics, etc. Things that they would have to go to MIT to train for, and we gave them micro degrees in an accelerated way with a job at the end. And um, this first cohort that I was a futurist for, and you know, gave the initial lectures for, um, is now uh, you know educating mm, the King of Jordan's you know High Council yeah. on on technology, and they're they're becoming you know. So I'm just showing it's the um, the transition from being disempowered to empowered is sometimes very short. It's a, it's incredibly disruptive if you can empower people who have the energy. So energy to manifest your willful community sense and contribution to community where you live, um, I think is something which, you know, we should not underestimate. Yeah, obstacle four is a, um, you could call it a more heart-centered one. Mm. Um, you know, I definitely think that we have to consider women as our main ally mm. to a better tomorrow. So I'm going to say that I'm... Um, I'm consistently reminded, you know, I've been a mentor to now over 30 women entrepreneurs. Um, it's something I chose as a young entrepreneur uh, to do. And um, it's just given me some of the greatest joys of my life. Amazing. And um, to be in uh, a giving mode. And it's given me more than anything else to see the blossoming of women. Amazing. How do you qualify women that are listening to us? How do they qualify to be mentored by you? <laughs> oh, well, I mean, it was just because, you know, I was so-called an expert in something, whether it was entrepreneurship or yeah. design or technology, yeah. you know, and, and then I, I, I sort of uh, gave time there and I had, I've been involved in many incubator and accelerator programs. Some yeah. I founded the one with the, the Vatican uh, under the hospices of the Pope's Laudato Si encyclical. Um, this was in 2016. Um, and then I had my own uh, incubator accelerator environment in the machines room, which was my fab lab uh, inside the Limor. But, but, but specifically the woman incubator, this is something that is still going on? Yes. Well, I would say when I meet a woman that I find has extraordinary resources to contribute to where we are, um, <clears throat> I want to you know, be of service. And um, I, I, I've really kind of enjoyed uh, learning from you know, how they have to behave in society in order to, you know, perform as well as a man. Does that make sense? Uh, so I learned more from that than they did probably, yeah. you know, because I saw all the uh, frictions with you know, society and, you know, all the things that they have to do to be treated fairly intellectually, professionally. Um, they have to hump through a lot of, ju uh, a lot of hoops and, um, and there are tricks. But overall, um, I guess, where was I with that? Um, the fourth obstacle is about the heart. Yes. It's, it's, and, and so I think it's, it's, the, it's the empowerment, you know, of the non-white male, if I had to, um, you know, simplify, you know, the kind of view. So I'm, I'm, I think women is the largest contingent of that. But there is more, you know, there's uh, indigenous uh, leaders and cultures and civilizations that, you know, I'm involved in through an organization called ICEers. Uh, so I really believe in maintaining the sacred being so essential to the psychedelic movement. Um, and it connects me with indigenous uh, cultures. Um, but in general, so you have, um, you know, uh, people of color uh, in certain countries. Uh, you have, of course, you know, cultures that are being suppressed in certain geographies, you know, whether you call it China, you know, which is effectively Han civilization. Um, which is quite limiting. And, you know, the, just we're completely suppressing the contribution of the majority of the world. <laughs> so 
how can we not see that as an obstacle to our thriving? So the obstacle is really excessive empowerment of the white male. Uh, yes, um, and 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 leaning into that, and here is a really problematic aspect of technology, where technology education, technology entrepreneurship, technology successes, unicorns, you know, the, finding the unicorn has led us to, um, you know, um, empowering the white male nerd to a um, very problematic degree. Uh, because it's just reinforced the suppression of the balancing factors that we had. Um, and even though we can say there's a mod- lot of empowering through technology, um, I think we need to be more aware of this. And I have to say, I don't really, um, I've not appreciated the way that Me Too or, you know, Black Lives Matters have been, um, you know, sort of pushed through society. Um, I think it's been uh, a bit forceful. Uh, sometimes a little bit, um, I'm not going to say ignorant because that, that would be, you know, judging. But I, I think it, it has, um, you know, if you, if you look at Israel, you know, during a certain period of time, you know, if, if you think of Israel being founded from, you know, uh, the Holocaust almost, and you see some of the work, you know, in the Gaza Strip, um, you know, it, it's shocking. And and it's, you know, I'm not going to, again, put fingers on, any, on anyone, but we seem to be very... Uh, incapable of remembering and, uh, you know, putting our uh, heart focus on uh, inclusion. And I think it's it's more about inclusion than, you know, penalizing. I want to go back to Mandela's forgiveness theories. I think we need to forgive ourselves a lot more because we need, that is how you include others. It's not by creating laws to say, you know, I was working in South Africa 16 years ago on a black empowerment project and it was limiting the competency of the people we could hire to train the same people we're trying to empower. So, you know, laws and regulations and frameworks and penalizations, you know, for me are less interesting than forgiveness, incentives and mutual education. And so I would definitely, you know, be a uh, proponent of, um, you know, training grounds where people learn, for example, to communicate with each other, like we do in couples. You know, God knows it's hard to listen to each other, even with the greatest intelligence and intent. So I think we need to really be more aware of our need to learn to listen, our need to learn to be inclusive in nature rather than, you know, by by force. Um, yeah. and, and that to me will empower billions. And if we do that, then, you know, if you have billions working in the right direction and, you know, and you multiply that by two, I think we can overcome incredible obstacles. Yeah, yeah. And and if I may add, you know, the I think the important thing to keep in mind if we want to increase communication among us is this idea that, you know, our mind is a battlefield, is a minefield of bias and conditioning, like Audrey Marcos says. And so if you don't do the work to identify this bias and conditioning, then, you know, then again, we go back to this idea of the blind spot. And then communication become, you know, is is like you're like half present. And so how do you deal with the, you know, bias and conditioning? We've been discussing that on Mango TV with, 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 with uh, you know, neuropsychopharmacologists and psychologists and shaman and um, mystics and tantra teacher, you know, all this way to 
and you know a, a, a more embodied spirituality that get you out of the out of the mind and and detach you for your biography your environment and your cultural conditioning in going out of your mind and so if everybody does this work there's a better chance of of getting along absolutely <laughs> <laughs> do you have a obstacle number 5 or i can recap the four if i'm if i can <laughs> i think there are many other obstacles yeah. that i could mention but the reason i chose those four is because i think that they they work together to either tie us to a tomorrow that we embrace with love and care and affection or you know they're going to cripple us yeah. um and um uh you know i i've preferred to choose you know slightly intangible obstacles uh, rather than very tangible ones you know if you want to go into the specifics of how we design cities how we you know uh, transform our you know land use and uh, farming systems if you want to go into you know all these things I'm, i would love to you know go into them you know i i've had a um, you could say a range of um uh, systems thinking journeys uh, that i would love to share um however i i feel that in this context you know where the um uh, the way that, you know the way that people can look at themselves and feel that they already have the the resources to get access to the tools that will empower them and to me that's essential you know i i i find a lot of people completely disempowered and disengaged and it's not that the opportunities are not there so they're struggling to see them and they disconnect from them and when they do that you know we're all losing you know one soul lost you know is is our soul less is our soul lost too amazing and thank you so much for offering to go in more details about how to build um a urban city around regenerative agriculture because i think that's we're going what we're going to do at olotropia <laughs> in, in in our panel about um, you know regenerative civilization so let me see if i can do that so and forgive me if i simplify and um, and 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 barbarize your thoughts so you see the first obstacle is this disconnection with nature which um which 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 solution could be this this new satellite imagery that can tell you in real time what's happening in terms of deforestation and pollution the second issue you see is this idea of um, aversion towards towards uh, technology uh, that's creating a lot of disempowerment there is a lot of way to use technology without being used by technology the third issue you mentioned is uh, this idea of excessive concentration also has, has created disempowerment and and then you know you mentioned blockchain as one of the tool of decentralization and finally this idea of you know the heart and getting along better and i see in these four issues the common thread is disempowerment versus empowerment i deeply resonate with that and i'm very grateful about your more if you want scientific and and mainstream approach because we love our ibisa community and the dreamers and the you know the modern seeker the third millennium um, people that see this third millennium as really a tipping point in consciousness and a mass awakening but i like your approach of you know working with government working with within the system 
Is there anything else you want to add? We've been together already an hour and 10 minutes. <laughs> well, uh, thank you, first of all, Giancarlo. I, I think what you're doing is, is extraordinary because, um, you know, this is about a cultural translation. Um, and and um, I would, um, you know, I see myself as a seeker um, and a person with, who, who likes to uh, test uh, ideas. Um, and over my career, which is, you know, uh, quite diverse, um, I would say that, um, you know, this, this notion of, of empowerment and disempowerment has been the thing that I, I've been hitting the most uh, as a sort of uh, critical threshold for, for us to, you know, be able to deal with problems. And um, I guess the role that I've uh, slightly invented for myself, even though I feel like I'm more of a spiritual person, is to be a bit of a bridge uh, between, let's say, this community in which we very luckily uh, live in of people who are always looking for, you know, not answers, um, but looking for paths, um, you know, out of the, um, you could say, the vortex that our current world systems is pushing us uh, through and into. Um, and I, you know, if there's anything else I would like to, to add, um, is that the spirit of hope is something that um, you know some people uh, are capable of expressing with great power and authority. You know, having worked with the Pope, or you know, having had the opportunity to be connected and tied to some of the Dalai Lama community, or you know, etc. These these are individuals, whether you like them or not. Uh, but what do they actually? What is their power? It's a soft power. And I, I really believe that we're in a moment of soft power in history. Nice. And everything that we are so, you know, faced with feels so hard and feels, you know, infrastructurally heavy. Um, and the, the, the conditioning that we have for the, you know, the weight of our global infrastructure, I think will feel a lot lighter from the place of hope, the place of heart. And um, it's not woo-woo. I think it's actually the fuel source to make all of this sort of disappear because, you know, when you think a way to, you know, there's this um, uh, thing that I had the opportunity to do many years ago with uh, Tony Robbins to walk on, you know, walk on fire. Mm -hmm. and, and again, it's just an image in your mind, but it's powerful, you know, and can you, can you walk on fire? Yes, you can. Um, and it's, it's really, I want everyone to feel that energy within them as much as possible, because everything that we're learning from the way that we're being uh, treated and educated right now is that we are not able to walk on fire, that only some can. And I think that's completely wrong. Um, and so this soft power that's within us and within us, particularly in connection, um, I think we need to get a lot more clever about focusing on because that is, you know, the, the language of together and it's not one which is intellectual. It's a feeling, and from that feeling, you know, stems uh, your authority as an individual in community. Yeah, that's so well said. And 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 the neoliberal capitalism artificially created the sense of being incomplete, the sense of scarcity, so that you consume. So it's very counterintuitive for people that are connected with the general media that you know they have the power; they can do that. 
So thank you so much. And Giancarlo, we'll, thank we'll, you. We'll see you for Allotropia and would love to have you back in a few months to hear more what you have been up to. With great pleasure. Thank you. Thank take, you so much. Take care. Coca sonara sonara yenti 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 Coca sonara sonara yenti